Grant, O Lord, that the seed of your word may find fertile soil in our hearts this day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you all know that before moving to Waco, I lived for several years in Central California. And one of the highlights of those years, I think, was getting to visit the coastal redwoods. Have any of you all seen the coastal redwoods? Yes, some of you have. You know what I'm talking about. These are literally the tallest living things in the world. Some of them grow to 350 feet or more. Um, the oldest of them were probably alive when Jesus was speaking these parables. And I once read a book about uh, scientists, people who climb these trees and study them, and the canopy is virtually its own ecosystem. There's a whole distinct set of birds, animals, insects, other plants that thrive and flourish because of these trees. And if, if you've been there, if you remember walking through these giants, there's just a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of beauty. And I found at least a profound peacefulness in these groves. And I'm reminded of that experience by this morning's reading from the prophet Ezekiel, where the voice of God speaking through the prophet describes the world's great kingdoms, Egypt, Assyria, as being like immense, awe-inspiring trees. Behold, he says, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds. It towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large, its branches long from abundant water and its shoots. There's a peacefulness to these kingdoms. The birds nest in the tree's branches. The nations of the earth find shelter under its shade. And I don't know if you noticed this, the prophecy even compares these kingdoms to the Garden of Eden itself. It says the cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. This is a portrait of what human society, human culture, human order is meant to be. Now, of course, in the 21st century America, empire is usually not a positive term. But the first nine verses of Ezekiel 31 offers the vision of an ideal empire where the world's peoples belong, not of oppression, but of order, of harmony. And it's awe-inspiring. It's a thing of beauty. Four times in these verses, we hear an emphasis on the beauty of this immense tree, this empire. And the final time, God himself says, I made it beautiful. Here we see God loving and delighting in human flourishing and human culture. And then, of course, we get to verse 10. Well, it was nice while it lasted. It's as if the prophet is showing us, here's what the great kingdoms aspire to, and, and maybe in some sense at least partially achieve, although there's usually a dark underside. But sooner or later, it collapses in on itself. The tree comes down. The nations turn against one another. They become enemies. They tear each other apart. 
The growth ends. The power is destroyed. The branches are scattered and left to rot. And you have this vast trunk lying on the ground, slowly decaying. And according to Scripture, this destruction is the result of pride. You may recall Father Lee was talking about pride in last week's sermon. Well, here it is again. Maybe the Eden illusion was a little more ominous than we first recognized. Maybe there's a word of warning here, because Ezekiel's beautiful poetic description becomes an oracle of judgment of the kind that Adam and Eve received in Genesis 3. Again, we heard this last week. This is the story of Scripture over and over again, the human pride, human self-exaltation, forgetting that God is the one who made it and us beautiful, forgetting God, and beginning to think and beginning to claim and beginning to expect others to believe, I did this. We did this. We can ascend up to heaven. The glory is ours. We can be like God. That's my throne. And just like the Tower of Babel, those who thought they could reach the heights of heaven instead find that they belong with those who go down to the pit. The great ancient cedar lies on the ground. This is what pride does, according to Scripture. It's a destroyer, whether we're talking about kingdoms or about our own lives. But you probably noticed there's another kingdom portrait in our readings this morning. And I want to make sure you consider the contrast here. Jesus says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. In the biblical world, a cedar of Lebanon is famously immense. If you want to talk about something really big, cedar of Lebanon a mustard seed is proverbially tiny. And yet, Jesus says, look what comes from this tiny seed. It becomes a tree. The largest of all the shrubs in the garden. But more than that, and I don't know if you caught this, but I think hearers familiar with the Greek Old Testament would have, Jesus echoes the language of Ezekiel's prophecy here. And similar passages in Ezekiel 17 and in the book of Daniel he says the mustard seed grows and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Wait a minute, I've heard this somewhere before. What Jesus is talking about is God's answer to the prideful and self-destructive empires of the world. When he says the mustard seed becomes the largest living thing in the garden, maybe we're even meant to hear another hint at Eden. But it's not a warning this time. It's God making things beautiful again. It's, this is the restoration of human community, of culture, of social order, as it was meant to be. But here's the point. This restoration is rooted in a turn to humility. Where human empires exult in their greatness, I'm a cedar of Lebanon. The kingdom of God glories in its small beginnings. It's a mustard seed. What could be more small? 
And I think that these two contrasting visions of greatness, these two kingdoms, these two trees, have profound implications for us as a church, as a congregation, also as individuals. Because the reality is, for most Christians today, at least in our part of the world, all our instincts, our default instincts, say we win or we lose through the methods of worldly power. This is how we think about winning and losing. Maybe you're an exception. You're probably not. We want to influence the realms of politics and economics and entertainment. As the mission statement of my undergraduate institution says, we want to lead the nation and shape the culture. It was a great college experience. And look, y'all know, I just spent six years studying literature at the doctoral level. I believe that culture matters. Okay, Christian engagement matters. However, the reality is that Jesus and his first followers don't triumph by crushing their political enemies. If you've read the Gospels, that's not how it goes. They don't grow through their superior economic position. There are some fairly wealthy early members, but many of them are poor. Some of them are slaves. They do write and create on a small scale, but they don't triumph through literature and the arts. And they're certainly not well represented in the media. So often today I hear Christians lamenting our loss of influence in this country. And, and in certain senses, that's probably true. Maybe there's some repenting we need to do about that. But friends, Christians in the United States of America in the year of our Lord 2021 have immeasurably more social and political and economic influence than first or second or even third century Christians had. And yet, eventually they saw even emperors converting and claiming the name of Christian. These guys are onto something that I want. The cedars of Lebanon started turning to this mustard shrub. Tell us about greatness. And ultimately, when the towering tree of the Roman Empire toppled, as the world's great kingdoms do, the church was still standing. And all sorts of people and even tribes and nations found refuge under her branches. These early Christians changed the world through their own greatness, not so much. How'd they do it? Through humility. Small mustard seed acts of faith and self-sacrificial love. Read this history sometime. When plague comes to a city in the Mediterranean, say around the year 150, Every pagan who can afford it heads for the countryside. But Christians stay and care for one another. If you're a pagan and you get sick, your chances of survival go up if you happen to have a Christian friend or a neighbor. These Jesus followers care about the people nobody cares about. They treat women better than the surrounding culture does. There's a reason a lot of women become Christians. When an unwanted baby is left out in the open to die because it's physically imperfect somehow because, well, frankly, we wanted a boy and not a girl. Christians take these children in. They love them. They treat them as their own. It's a ministry of adoption. 
When a fellow Christian is in need, brothers or sisters share their possessions. Just two days ago, we celebrated the Feast of St. Barnabas. The book of Acts talks about how he had resources, and so he went and sold a field and brought the proceeds and laid them at the disciples' feet for them to distribute to those in need. Early Christian preachers like Ambrose, Peter Chrysologus point out, it's only when a mustard seed is crushed that it gives forth its fragrance and its flavor. And Christians respond to the Lord's call to divest themselves of wealth. Some of them have to relinquish positions of power. You see some early Christians giving up theatrical work or military office because it's going to require them to participate in idolatry. They say, sorry, I can't do that. I guess I'm out of a job. Some of them, including the apostles themselves, are beaten or jailed. Some humble themselves even to the point of losing their lives because they understand Jesus' words from the Gospel of John that unless a seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. Empires fall. Human power fails. Our greatest efforts collapse under the weight of pride and self-glorification. But the humility of God, ah, The humility of God is stronger than the greatness of man. And the kingdom that Jesus plants in his own burial bursts forth on Easter morning and it grows. The cross leads to resurrection. Martyrdom leads to renewed faith and witness. The mustard seed of this faith crushed gives forth its fragrance and it bears fruit. Not the fruit of self-exaltation, but a self-gift in Jesus' name. Fruit that does the thing that fruit is supposed to do, fall and die so that more fruit can come. That's how early Christians changed the world. Or maybe we should say, that's how the Holy Spirit of God brings his kingdom through them. There's a temptation for us, I think, to begin to say to ourselves, maybe not consciously, well, we're just a modest-sized congregation, right? We're not a megachurch. We have a lot of challenges and expenses. We have this old air conditioner that keeps needing repairs. We're in Waco. It's not exactly the halls of power and privilege. We're just ordinary folks. There's only so much we can accomplish. Brothers and sisters, it was never about how much we can accomplish. But what can God do in and through us? And this takes us to Jesus' other parable. He says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, and then the harvest comes. Now, some of you are gardeners, and you're thinking, this sounds like terrible agricultural advice, Jesus. Seeds need tending and care. But here's what Jesus wants us to understand, that the good news of the kingdom contains the principle and power of growth within itself. As we sleep and rise, as we die to our own pride and are raised up in him, so also the kingdom comes alive in and around us, and it brings a harvest. And that's not just true for us as a congregation, but at a personal level as well. 
The psalmist says, and here's this comparison, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree and shall spread abroad like what? A cedar in Lebanon. The great trees collapse under their own weight. But the righteous, those who are planted in the house of the Lord, are raised up. That awe-inspiring beauty and splendor and wonder and peace becomes theirs because they're rooted in what God has done. This is why Psalm 92 opens with words of thanksgiving and praise to God. Remembering and proclaiming that he's the one who gives growth and beauty. This is where humility starts. They also shall bring forth fruit in their old age, it says, and shall be green and full of sap. Or in other words, don't say, I'm too old and dried up to do anything for the kingdom. Don't say I'm too young. Don't say I'm too poor. I'm too distracted. I'm too sick. I'm too socially awkward. It's a mustard seed, people. You don't get less impressive than that. Take what you have. Take what you don't have and plant it in the ground of humility and water it with thanksgiving. Say to God here, do what you want with this. Do what you want with this. And when God starts doing stuff, tell somebody else about it and plant a seed for them too. Now if you try to embrace this way of humility... It's going to be a bumpy road. You're going to run into challenges. The early Christians can tell you this. And not just from out there, right? From in here. Within the church, within the family, perhaps most of all within our own hearts. Because the ways of pride and self-exaltation and self-protection have put down some pretty deep roots in us. Rooting out pride and planting humility can be a painful process. But here's the good news. Jesus is utterly confident that the power of the kingdom seed he plants can and will triumph. This seed's going to grow. This kingdom's coming because the humility of God is stronger than human pride. And the weakness of God is greater than human strength. And the Holy Spirit of God can and will fulfill his promises and accomplish his kingdom work in us, in you, If humility breaks open the husk of our pride and allows the seed to sprout so that his power and his life flow through. So that just like those coastal redwoods, so that just like a cedar of Lebanon, like a tree planted in the courts of God, the result in us will be beautiful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.